Another Fun Belt podcast coming at you. Dusty Thibodeau, Warhawk Report. Joining me is Jeremy Harper. We have no video with the show, Jeremy. We've always tossed around yeah. that idea of having video. People would have seen you were late because you're always a cluster, as always. Yeah, you know, I was late. I was, I was just clinging to my gutters, cleaning them out with a pressure hose dangling from a 20-foot extension ladder that I just purchased from Lowe's. So, uh, yeah, I'm a little frazzled right now, Tibbs. So you're going to have to lead the show in a way you've never led it before. So, so you're saying that the, the future and fate of the show is all about how much balance you have on one foot with a garden hose? Uh, pretty much. You know, I had my son helping me out, and he was just like sitting in the yard in a chair looking at his phone. I'm actually glad you called because you probably saved my insurance like billions in premiums. So it's a mess is what you're telling me. And a guy that can help us sort out the biggest mess that we're facing is this whole Sunbelt Conference realignment stuff. That is Dan Lust. He joins us from Garagos and Garagos. They're the leader in sports law. They've represented the likes of Colin Kaepernick, Eric Reed. Okay. Another thing that Dan's covered that was definitely a cluster, much like this whole Sunbelt versus Conference USA, he worked on the Firefest case, which, if you uh-huh. know, was the falsified cluster yeah. of a getaway at uh-huh. the island that was not used by Carlos Escobar's people back in the day. Dan's also worked in sports, though, doing arbitration cases for MLB teams and founded the NBA negotiation competition. He's been featured on Darren Rovin, Dan Lambertard, Keith Oberman, ESPN radio. Uh-huh. And now he's on the fun belt podcast. Welcome in Dan. Uh, my pleasure to join you guys. Listen, I saw, I saw fun belt conference and I'm like, I don't know what this is, but I got to join the show. This sounds, this sounds like a lot of fun. So well, there's no funner conference than the sun belt. It's a great name. It's a, it's an absolutely an, a fantastic name. Whoever you, whoever came up with it gets, uh, gets all the points here. There is some sort of unknown hero floating in the ether who came up with that. And it's, it probably burns with envy or with anger every time he sees somebody use it and he doesn't get the royalties. In fact, you should represent that guy. If it's one of you two guys, I'm in. But if it's one of your enemies, no, I'm on your no, team. It's not us. No. We weren't that smart. Yeah. <laughs> Well, listen, if someone comes after you, sue you for the use of Fun Belt Conference, I got you. (laughs) Look there. Jeremy, we we now have – we have talked with the commissioner of the league. We have talked with bowl game representatives. Yes. We've talked with athletic directors, head coaches. Absolutely. And and now we have legal – we we are going national. We're going national, but here's the thing. This this big mess that's come up between Conference USA and Sun Belt really needs – somebody to untangle these Christmas tree lights because it didn't seem to always be this way. Back when Middle Tennessee and Western Kentucky left, it seemed like it was just easy peasy. They just kind of walked out. There didn't seem to be any entanglements. So why is this so much different than it was 10 years ago? Certainly we're in a world now where the framework of college sports uh, we'll say is a lot less, a lot less clear than it was 10 years ago, probably a lot less clear than it was five years ago. Um, and maybe part of that is the NIL stuff. Maybe part of that is, is transferring. I think what these schools are realizing is that unless they, you know, kind of, um, put themselves and position themselves in a way that benefits themselves, right. You can just look no further than Texas and Oklahoma and they might get caught, you know, might get left in the dust. So 
this period of conference realignment is happening at a time where television rights are at the highest they've ever been of all sports on television, right? Anything on television, sports are getting paid the most. So people are kind of aligning in these power conferences, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, the rich are getting richer and then the, the conferences beneath them all are kind of collecting the talent. So um, yeah, I don't know why necessarily um, it's changed. I don't, I mean, obviously breach of contract and contract laws existed for a century um, and maybe schools are just more daring to do it. Maybe the world of social media is kind of putting some pressure on some uh, parties that there wouldn't otherwise be, you know, the very public release of the schedule that the whole country can now look at. Um, maybe that's part of it, but certainly you know, those are factors that weren't here, you know, objectively uh, 10 years ago, right? No one was using social media like that. So maybe that, maybe it's a combination of the three, but, you know, certainly we're in a different landscape when it comes to sports and media than we were, um, you know, at any point in time. So Dad. I know that you, pro you probably don't have an answer. All you have is conjecture and, and, and your point of view. But how much of this do you think is, is related to money and NIL and contract? And how much is related to just pure spite? I mean, at the end of the day, right, it's all about the Benjamins. It's always going to be about the Benjamins, right? Um, I, think, I think the world where people stay because of pure blind loyalty to the conference is gone. The second Oklahoma and Texas moved to the SEC, like that world's over. It doesn't, doesn't really matter anymore. Um, so I think it's all really uh, about money. Um, you know, that could be money, it could be NIL, it could be the television deals. Um, I don't necessarily think it's, it's spite. Um, but I do think, right, this battle between, um, you know, the conferences at this point, I, and, I, and I will say the, maybe the quote unquote spitefulness is a conference not willing to let go. Whereas in the past, you know, I, I think these, if someone wanted to break a contract, they orchestrate some deal to let it go, right? We can look no further than the, the college coaches leaving, right? Brian Kelly, um, you know, um, or even Riley, like the coaches leave, they're obviously breaking their contracts by leaving early, but like, you know, they pay the exit fees, they pay something else under the table. It's not a big deal. No one ever really holds the coach in. What we're seeing now is something somewhat unprecedented, um, you know, that the conference is seeking to hold the schools in, essentially hold them hostage. I think everyone's clear that they're breaking that notice provision in the, in the contract, which we'll get into. Um, but you know, we've broken contracts in the past before and, you know, Benjamins can pay it off. So something odd is going here. So, you know, you guys are in the, in the thick of it. If you think there's some spite involved, I can just tell you that this situation is, is somewhat unprecedented. So the, 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 I think it's $3 million question, because that's actually what each school would have to pay in the exit fees. Where do you think these teams wind up landing when it's all said and done and we're ready to release the schedule come uh, early March? I mean, here's the thing. So let's let's take uh, one step back. The, the biggest part of this, this contract of this battle, I mean, it's really twofold. There's obviously always um, exit fees, right? You can you pay the uh, preemptive breach fee and you can get out, right? Um, what's interesting here is this notice provision that says in order to leave the conference, you need to provide 14 months notice. And let's think about logically why you have 14 months. It's not an arbitrary number. It's because logically you probably need 14 months to find a proper replacement for that school to replace them on the schedule. Schedules are done. Some games are done three, four or five years in advance. So it's not that crazy. Um, so if that notice provision is held by a court to be a condition precedent, what's called a something that has to happen in order for you to leave, in order for you to even be able to pay that exit fee of $3 million, um, that's the question here. And I don't, I don't necessarily think it's so clear. I think the contract was missing some provisions to really be airtight. Um, but I, I think the conference is going to argue conference USA. That is that, Hey, we don't have suitable replacements for these schools on like three months notice. Um, and that's patently unfair to do to us. So my, you asked me, where do I, how do I think it's going to shake out? 
Um, you know, if the conference gets an injunction, which I think people are saying that they're going to maybe preemptively sue uh, the three schools in question to make them stay in the conference, uh, you know, I, I think we've somewhat seen it before. I mean, you guys know with uh, the College Football Association back in the 80s, right, when they had that big uh, lawsuit with the television deals, there was the lawsuit between the College Football Association and the NCAA, whether these schools could kind of leave and start the College Football Association. Similar, there was an injunction secured that prevented the College Football Association from having these separate TV deals. If you ask me, as of today on February, you know, whatever it is, the 20th, um, I, I actually think the schools stay another year. That's, a, that's at least my guess. But, you know, that's just one year. 2023 is a whole different ballpark. Is there any kind of argument that you would make if you were representing these schools, you know, things like, well, the Sunbelt has a better media deal, so we're going to make more money going there. Obviously, there's more teams, more higher quality teams in RPI rankings. Uh, having had teams ranked in the college football uh, playoff that Conference USA didn't, that that would excuse them or give them grounds to be able to make that jump. I mean, they're not going to be able to look at – I mean, here's, here's the thing, right? You, when you look at – when you have a court case, right, you can argue the facts, right? You can argue the law. Um, here, uh, this is somewhat unprecedented, at least in, with respect to Conference USA, to be able to leave 14 months, you know, within that 14-month period, right? If you were to, uh, let's say, guys, we were talking about renting an apartment. If you wanted to break the lease early and not provide proper notice to your landlord, big deal. You'd cut a check. Yeah, it's not that big of a deal. So um, you're going to find hundred thousands, millions of situations where someone broke a lease early. So that's somewhat, you know, there's some precedent to it. So you can't really look at the law and the law of the contract that's going to so clearly state these schools can leave early. But you can say, which, you know, a lot of these cases get resolved in that front. You have one side saying you're not allowed to leave. Another side saying we want to leave. We'll pay you a certain amount of money. You go to mediation, you go to arbitration, you go to the settlement table and you strike a deal. That's the most likely outcome of all of this. Um, but I still think Conference USA is going to say we don't have the suitable replacements yet. So we're not we'd rather kind of bog this down and play a little bit of filibuster, right? Play the game and keep them in the conference while the lawsuit works itself out. And a court's going to enforce that injunction. I, I would think you could you basically argue something called irreparable harm. Uh, hey, like we don't have a replacement for these schools. We literally don't know how to replace them on such short notice. So, you know, the argument is like, hey, why can't we just pay a certain amount of money to get out? And maybe ultimately money talks, but uh, that's going to be contingent on Conference USA finding some suitable replacements here. I think the biggest definition there that, that I hear, suitable replacement. What would they, I mean, I, I guess that's the biggest gray area of what would they deem? Because in my eyes, Marshall is not necessarily replaceable with the teams that they've gone after in Conference USA. It's not the same market that you're going to be able to generate revenue off of ads and such. Um, definitely not the same caliber of programs that you have. And that's not to take anything away from Southern Miss. I'm just focused on Marshall because they were first in my mind. Um, but all three of the schools coming in, none of the replacements are in that same level of marketing. Yeah. And then that's, that's part of it. I mean, here's, here's where like the damages calculation comes in. Well, I think we're all on the same page. I think everyone looking at this um, and I, and I believe there are other conferences that are other schools that are leaving the conference that plan to join the Sunbelt in 2023. So other schools are saying, Hey, we plan to leave, but we'll actually give it a year. We'll give it the, the full, you know, year. Um, so, you know, then the question is, why are these three schools any different? Um, why, why are, why are they the exception? Um, so, you know, that's kind of the question you have to wonder from a damages calculation, if you're going to just basically have, let's, let's say, you know, they run the conference with three less schools. 
you have to wonder about how much money would have been generated with those three schools. And then the separate calculation, Dusty, how much money would have been generated with three, we'll say, you know, higher level schools versus the three lower level schools. So there, there is an amount of money you can put in. That part's precedent. That damage calculation exists. You could hire an economist and probably figure that out, you know, in a week. Somebody could do that, run the numbers and crunch it. Um, but, you know, it, it would be different if this was like a five-year contract and five-year calculation. But if everyone's saying within one year, we all agree they should be able to leave and the issue is just 2022, um, you know, there's at least a finite amount of, um, you know, the damage on it. We've, we've seen the precedent where the CAA basically pulled all eligibility from James Madison this year. Thus, they really don't have as much value as they would if they were in that championship or able to compete for that championship uh, title. Does that play into that whole calculation that you were talking about? I think so. I mean, certainly it's going to be a case-by-case basis. I think we'd have to see, Dusty, what the schools are that that do ultimately replace them. Um, and even if the schools don't come into play and, and they're not replaced until like, I don't know, two years down the line, right? Sometimes it takes time for these deals to expire, for schools to get unwound, just like we're seeing here, right? We don't know the notice provisions in every uh, you know conference contracts in, in the country. But yeah, it, it's certainly going to make a difference. And then we're going to see how the conference has to perform. Right. Let's say, you know, let's say Marshall is able to leave and has a fantastic year in the Sunbelt Conference. Right. Then Conference USA is going to have another argument and they're going to say, like, we would have we would have reaped the benefit of that of Marshall's fantastic year. So, yeah, I mean, it's there's a saying, right, like for damages, they're all kind of speculative. We don't know what the damages are. We don't know how the teams are going to play. Liberty came out of nowhere this year and had a fantastic year. Right? Who, who would have put them on the radars like this? you know, maybe a year ago. Um, so I think it depends. It's certainly everything speculative, but I think the James Madison point's well taken. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously it's it's going to be a touch and go situation. So Dan, if I, let's say that instead of you talking to Jeremy Harper, you're actually right now talking to Keith Gill. And what you've been saying is that looks like CUSA is going to fight for these teams for another year. And it sounds like to me that the teams right now are worth more to CUSA as they're trying to, I don't know, uh, recover from the seismic waves of people leaving their conference, bringing in some, some FCS teams to fill in that gap, trying to get them up to speed. It seems like they have a lot more incentive. Would you advise Keith Gill to say, okay, why don't you avoid this legal brouhaha and let this play out for a year? Or is there, is there an incentive for the Sun Belt to keep fighting this fight? Well, here's here's probably my most fun part of this equation. Um, you know, I think Conference USA certainly struck first uh, by putting out the schedule with the schools listed on it. Uh, this weird counter statement: Hey, we're going to keep the schools in. Uh, they have their contractual obligations, and here's the schedule. Um, the ball is in the Sun Belt Conference's court, so to speak. Right? They're going to have to, as they do every year, as every conference puts out every year, they put out the schedule. Um, so. That's the question, right? And I'm sure Keith Hill's having that conversation right now. Do we put them on the schedule or do we not put them on the schedule? And I'm hearing these weird reports, which I'm sure you guys are, that um, you know Marshall was contacting Conference USA and to see if they could schedule non-conference games with Conference USA. So certainly Marshall's operating as if they want to schedule non-conference games against Conference USA, maybe some familiar foes, but what are you legally characterized? Are you, are you in conference USA or Sunbelt? From a, from a pure legal standpoint, I think Sunbelt making that move and saying, here's our schedule. Uh, now Marshall is on both schedules. Um, I think that's the cue that Sunbelt gets pulled into this lawsuit. So obviously uh, I, I don't think Marshall, um, you know, Southern Miss, 
Old Dominion would have made this move without some type of conversation with uh, Sunbelt Conference. So I think probably the Sunbelt is probably going to get pulled into the lawsuit already. Maybe it's a 50-50, maybe right now. But if they put out the schedule, uh, you know, uh, it would make some other overt type of statement. We support whatever the schools do. Uh, then it's obviously, um, you know, we're straying into a scenario where it's an, an absolute no-brainer that Sunbelt uh, is brought in. What's the compromise that you see? Uh, conference, I mean, it, it's the boring answer, but it's money, right? The, the Sunbelt Conference makes money. I mean, the same conversation, which I, I spent a lot of time talking about with uh, this interesting, you know, Big 12 SEC nonsense with Oklahoma and Texas. Um, and, and and we're kind of seeing a version of it, right? Like the Big 12 was worried that they were going to just disintegrate because everyone was going to poach them and the vultures were going to come in. So they had to really come out and file what's called a... a um, uh, it's a law or at least a cease and desist. They actually sent it. If you guys remember, they sent a cease and desist letter to ESPN of all things for being like the kind of broker in this transaction with something mm-hmm. called tortious interference with the contract. So uh, this is why I'm kind of hinting Sunbelt might have already done that, right? Howard Marshall, Old Dominion and Southern Miss, how do they have a spot in the Sunbelt conference, right? They obviously had to speak to someone ahead of time. So that's the makings of the claim for what we call tortious interference with the contract. The, the compromise, Dusty, that you ask is some type of monetary payment to make everybody whole. If Conference USA is saying, well, if we had the full amount of schools, we would have made X amount of money, some help can turn around, right? The schools can turn around and cut a check. Um, but if it's principal, if they want to put their foot down, which Conference USA might, if they might be sensing that other conferences are trying to pick away their teams, then you hold tight because of principal. Um, and that's kind of what Bob Bowlesby did with the Big 12. The guy threatened to sue ESPN, right? He threatened to sue a media behemoth because he was worried about his conference being picked apart by the AAC and, and maybe Big Ten or whatever other conferences. So that's my read on the Conference USA situation. Not that they can't, not that there's some amount of money that they wouldn't take. If they got offered $100 million, like, or make up a number, $250 million, certainly the case would go away. But they're worried about Conference USA ceasing to exist, right? If you lose that many schools in that short of a time and you're Conferences destabilized. Um, we've seen conferences cease to exist, right? Big East doesn't have a football conference anymore. It's happened. Um, so that's that's what I would be worried about. I, if I'm Conference USA, you guys asked me from Keith Gill's perspective, if I'm Conference USA, I'm putting my foot down, filing an injunction and trying to hold firm for a year until I can get my bearings and find some suitable replacements. You know, I, I think oh, do we want to talk some NIL? I, I'm here for it. I, I love talking about that. All right, baby. I would love to ask a couple NIL questions. Mostly Pandora's box. Go ahead. Well, what's your 30,000 foot view of it right now? It looks like uh, sort of like a a wild, wild west out there where nobody seems to know what the rules are, how far you can stretch it. What what stops you from being a car dealership offering a hundred thousand dollar contract to a five star player? I mean, what's your initial thought of NL, NIL, and do you think it will be uh, sort of corralled at some point? Um, <clealy> I mean, at a 30,000-foot level, I'm obviously in support of players getting paid. If it's, sure. if, if it's the businesses paying players and the school's not losing money, you know, the, the football program's not losing money, that we're just creating an additional stream of revenue, I'm totally fine with that. I have no issue with it. And in that world, the pure NIL world, who's getting paid? Like the quarterbacks, running backs, the point guards, right? The top, top athletes. And I think that's the, that's, you know, been the outcry that a guy, you know, like, um, you know, I'm, I'm going back a couple of years, but a guy like Willis McGay, who, who gets hurt in the bowl game, I think it was the Fiesta Bowl, if I'm remembering, 
but that he can blow out his leg and maybe not have the same career he wanted. But the guy was one of the top players in all of college football. So that guy should have been making money. If you're uh, the backup right tackle, no one's been out crying for you to make money. It just, if, if you weren't able to get on the field at your particular college program and you never had any draft stock and your season ending injury wouldn't necessarily impact your career ending injuries because you weren't going to make a pro anyway. I don't think anyone's necessarily was clamoring for money. Now, the other part of the NIL conversation um, is this interesting one that we're like kind of in the weeds or I don't know, in the midst of this like collective conversation that schools can now and boosters can like pool money together and say, if you come to our school, we have a, we have a bag of money for you. And uh-huh. that, that's their, you know, like look no further than Texas with this pancake program. That's their way of paying offensive linemen because no businesses are going to pay an offensive lineman, but their quarterbacks, right? They're going to need an offensive line. And if the NIL, these outside businesses aren't going to pay them, the collectives that are run by the boosters, they'll filter money to get the best offensive linemen. So I'm not sure necessarily, I mean, obviously I like our athletes getting paid. I don't, I don't love uh, boosters finding ways to basically give pseudo salaries to um, players and to win recruiting battles. I mean, like maybe I'm okay with it. I'm not, I'm not sure. Like after a hundred years of college football, this is just very new to me. So I'm a, you know, as a college football historian, um, I just, I just find it, uh, I just find it odd. I don't, I can't tell you who's right or wrong. Cause I I'm all for athlete empowerment, but I'm also against like shady things when all of the States in our countries are abiding by different NIL laws and some schools are comfortable doing X and Y and without a federal bill, without our, our congressmen or congressmen and women stepping up, uh, every state uh, has different rules. And we have a national championship decided like kind of in part based on like unique state rules. I just, I'm very, uh, it's kind of an uncomfortable situation. Well, in some ways, Dan, there's just not enough data, right? We've had a year or so of NIL. It it, it seems to be evolving every day. Something's a little different that's shaping whether it's the super packs that are showing up or the, the, uh, the, 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 uh, individual businesses in small towns like Norman all of a sudden, putting up big money for a, a five-star recruit. We don't know really where it's going to head. And maybe it'll take four or five years before we see the big picture of NIL. Does, does the transfer wire have anything to do with NIL? Are those two related right now, portal transfer? Um, they, they are and they aren't. I mean, the transfer rule was passed independent of anything relating to NIL. It was just kind of a, um, I guess we could say happy accident, but it's, you now, if you enter the transfer portal, you're basically creating a version of pseudo free agency. So um, those two things, right? The waiving of the of the uh, you know the, I know the, the one time free transfer rule um, is something we haven't seen before. Like you know that a Caleb Williams can have an amazing year in Oklahoma and just say, hey, enter in the transfer portal, and he's kind of saying, right, like who's gonna pay me the most money? Yeah, who's gonna set me up? Like it, it's. It's just odd. Like we've certainly had that at the high school level. When guys come from high school to pro, you know, to college, and there's maybe some under the table talks about money, and we're kind of having that at NIL. But for a guy to have a pretty successful, you know, very successful year at Oklahoma, um, I think it's certainly fair that if your coach leaves and goes to another program, like what happened with Lincoln Riley, Caleb Williams should be able to follow his coach. I don't have any issue with that. Um, so he's probably not the best example. But like in the midst of this transfer portal. Uh, the situation that I, you know, I teach my, um, I'm a sports law professor at my, my school, um, in New York law school, the, the example with Charlie Batch, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with former, uh, you know, Eastern Michigan quarterback, Detroit Lions, 
while Williams is in the transfer portal, he basically goes, hey, if you come on Twitter, I don't even say basically, outwardly said, if you come to Eastern Michigan, we will pay you $1 million. And I just, I find that world a little odd that that, yeah. that that could happen and there's no punishment, that there's nothing technically, you know, I guess Charlie Batch doesn't work for Eastern Michigan. So he's kind of a fan, but he's kind of in the collective. So it's just, it just makes me feel uncomfortable. Not that it's not good for college sports, college athletes. It's just, it's just a wild, wild west. So lack of data, however you want to call it. We're, we're in this real weird gray zone right now. Yeah, Dan, because, you know, I, you know, I'm a citizen of Arkansas State University. We don't have a lot of money and a lot of fame and fortune. But if I were rich and Spencer Radler comes onto the transfer portal, I might be inclined to say, hey, Spencer, how would you like to have a $500,000 internship at my company if you move to Jonesboro and, uh, and uh, play quarterback for the Red Wolves? To me, that, that's just a, a, a very, it's not a slippery slope, it's just a slope. You know, I, I don't know how to stop that. I, don't, I, I understand your point. Of, yeah, I want the, the, the students to be fairly compensated because the, the students are the one that are the engines to this billion dollar business and they're the ones getting the shaft i just don't know what's that balance that prevents these sort of just i don't know greed <laughs> one, one thing for you that um for your listeners just pay attention to in the next year year and change i don't know i'm not sure when it's going to happen but we had the nil conversation of whether it was fair for third-party businesses to pay athletes i think everyone's fine with that now we're in this second level of nil like should these collectives be allowed to just you know uh, for boosters to pool money like they're doing in Florida and Texas and different schools. Should we allow that? Okay. So, you know, we're, we're all coming to terms with it. It's interesting. The third level of this, we're not quite there yet. We, we will be soon. Um, and the first and second conversations are leading there. The more these athletes get paid, the more they have agents and lawyers and they have all these people around them. And then they're allowed to transfer and they're basically in, in free agency. All of a sudden our college athletes look a lot like pros. There's not really that much of a difference. And once that happens, um, our professional athletes are considered employees. They get workers' comp. They get long-term disability. They can get fired, right? Um, yeah. then we're already seeing that. Uh, UCLA, USC, there's a, an organization that filed an unfair labor practice against the schools for not considering those athletes at USC and UCLA to be employees. And once they get employee status, I, I don't know if you guys are big baseball fans, right? You could have a lockout. You could have a strike. You could have um, a, a crazy world where football players go, hey, we're making millions of dollars for the university. We don't really want that to go to the swimming program or the wrestling program or the golf program. We want that to stay with us. And we as the players, right, just like they say in baseball right now, we want 50% of the pie. We don't care where the rest of the pie goes, but we get 50% of our revenue. That's, you know, I think the collective stuff, I can pop out either way. I could wake up feeling one way the next day, whatever. NIL, pure NIL, I think everyone's in support of, but this world where athletes are considered employees, that's not going to be so smooth. Um, I think, I think people are going to fall in the line of like, if this kills our other college sports, uh, you know, what are we going to do about it? But again, if you're the, the, the parents of a college football player, you would want your athlete to get 50% of the revenue, right? Um, so yeah, that's, that's the third level that we're not, we're not quite yet. there. We got to pay attention. It's going to happen. Yeah, it's going to happen sooner rather than later. Wow. Who knew that NIL could be the death of Title IX? <laughs> and on that note, Dan, we thank you very much for joining us here on Fun Belt Podcast. How can, how can our listeners follow you as you give your legal uh, insights of the sporting world? 
So, um, Dusty, as I think you, you did your background on me, uh, busy is good. I've been getting the call for some big shows. You know, my wife tells me I have a face for radio. I have been getting the call for TV as of late. Um, so I got the call for Fox Business, Fox News. I'm ma making the rounds here. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm on, I'm on social media at Sports Law Lust. And my podcast is called Conduct Detrimental. Uh, we cover a lot of college sports, a lot of pro sports. We've been covering the Brian Flores uh, racial discrimination lawsuit. We've been going over um, people are baseball fans, this really kind of messy Tyler Skaggs, a uh, criminal case, former Los Angeles Angels pitcher who lost his life due to a drug overdose. Yeah. Angels are now getting sued in court for causing that death. So, you know, we're, we're lawyers basically talking sports at the bar. So we, we try to break it down in, in a fun way for everybody. We thank you again for joining us there. My Thanks, pleasure, Dan. guys. Anytime. There's the insight okay. that basically it's all going to be settled by arbitrators, the courts, uh -huh. not me and you, over who gets to actually play in Conference USA or the Sunbelt Conference this upcoming year? I will be very surprised if we get what we want, which is essentially having the three Conference USAs and James Madison playing football when the fall season starts for the Sunbelt. I, I, I don't see that happening. I, I feel like Conference USA does have a legal a foot to stand on. So I, you know what I, I, I want to see. A Are you implying that yeah. Jacksonville State is not an equal replacement for Marshall? All right, here's the thing, though. I, that I, Sam Houston State is not an equal replacement for Old Dominion. No, well, one, one, those are great programs. Let's just let's just not be let's not be mean. Bird let's for just, bird, they got the Liberty Flames. We get Southern Miss. Yeah. I think it's a fair trade. I, I, here's the thing, though. It takes a while for those FCS programs to kind of get to speed. I mean, even, even though Appalachian State and Georgia Southern both entered the Sun Belt and, and did pretty good, uh, or in some cases except, except, exceptional, I thought facilities-wise, it took them a while to get up to speed and get things going. So for, for, to ask uh, CUSA, to bring these guys online right away and say, hey, you've got to pick up the slack for uh, Southern Miss and you've got to pick up the slack for Marshall and you've got to pick up the slack for Old uh, Dominion. That's pretty tough. So I get that. What bugs me is that when those programs left the Sun Belt, you know, 10 years ago, whenever, there was no, there was no feeling as, well, how's the Sun Belt going to respond to that? How are they going to cope? It was like, adios, fellas, we'll see you later. And now the shoe's on the other foot. But I do think that, that they do have kind of a legal leg to stand on. They do have big incentive to fight to keep those teams in place. So I, I, it will be a, an upset to me if the Sun Belt manages to have them for the fall season. What if, and let me put on my tinfoil hat for this one, okay. Dan alluded to it in his interview that yeah. Marshall had reached out wanting to know if they could play non-conference games against Conference USA. With the uh, Sun Belt's... TV package, those would be ESPN games. Is Marshall yeah. willing to sacrifice some TV revenue for the good of the league? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I do. I think Marshall and Southern Miss, and I, I don't know, tell you the truth, Old Dominion continues to be a mystery to me. So I don't even know. Okay, I don't even have my fingers on their pulse. But I do know that Southern Miss and Conference USA, thanks to that terrible uh, uh, TV structure that they had, so I, I feel like they'd be willing to make some kind of concession like that to get that ball rolling. And it might 
it might have to be a Sunbelt CUSA getting together and cutting up that pie a little bit to where everybody benefits a little bit. Like I, it might not just I, be Marshall making the moves. It might be CUS because we can see each other in court, but it's just going to make it to where we all lose money. Let's find a way where we can all make it. Coming up, while we're talking football real quick, NFL yeah. Combine March 1st through the 7th, 324 mm-hmm. invites in all, six from the Sunbelt Conference. Coastal Carolina with two players, Jeffrey Gunter, the defensive lineman, and tied in Isaiah Likely. Louisiana Lafayette, Percy Butler, the defensive back, and Max Mitchell on the offensive line. Of course, Jalen Talbert from South Alabama and DeMarco Jackson from Appalachian State. But more important than all of that, we are down to the final week of Sunbelt Conference basketball. Oh, my God. This is it. Yeah. Texas State currently sits atop the league. The NBA releases their projections of how they see the field kind of shaking out. And with that, the Bobcats are projected to be the 14th seed in the NCAA tournament, taking on Wisconsin. And that might happen because all they need is one more win this upcoming weekend, and they're the regular season champs again. But it's a tough road as they travel to the Alabama schools. First up is South Alabama on Thursday, Saturday at Troy. Yeah. You know, if you, if I've been watching, I've been very like attuned to Sunbelt basketball this last four or five weeks, just seeing who's good, watching how they play, seeing where their strengths are, finding their weaknesses. And it seems like it, it, it all boils down to everybody is just about the same <laughs> in the Sun Belt. Like some teams are deep. Like Troy is a very deep team, and that's why they do well. And some teams are very good at defense. That's why Appalachian State does well. There's not one team out there that's lights out on scoring, except for South Alabama, when they can get hot. And they get cold a lot. So watching this sort of a Sun Belt uh, – uh, I don't know, Jenga Tower unfold has been fascinating. The rise of Texas State, you know, they started the season pretty bad. You know, they were, they had to claw their way back to the top, you know, with Caleb Asbury and, and some of the, and, and, and Harold and some of these other guys. You know, they're not like blowing out teams. They're just playing solid basketball. You had ULM, who I gave up for dead, not necessarily competing for, you know, the top of the league, but suddenly looking very competent. You know, you, you, you've got uh, South Alabama, who played terrible the first two or three weeks of the season. They're suddenly back in the mix. And guess who is knocking on the door? It, it's too bad that our buddy, uh, uh, that, 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 our, our buddy. Uh, yeah, he's never here, so I, I forget his name, too. <laughs> his name's only a sketchy. But. Georgia State is looking really good right now. I think they've won five, six in a row. And that shooting, that was just the the, the horror for the Panthers has suddenly become their strong point. Five straight for the Panthers. Yeah. And, And I think they're probably the most dangerous team right now because they're hot at the right time. Exactly. And even if they have a bad last week of the season, I still think that they're hot at the right time, that when it comes down to hitting the floor in Pensacola, that that's going to be the team that you really have to look out for. The other team that 
I was really impressed with the most was Texas State circling back to them. They did what no one else was able to do. They shut down Norchad Omir in <laughs> their win last weekend, held Omir to only, and I say only because these are great numbers by any player stretch except for him, only 14 points and nine rebounds. Yeah, you know, I was watching that game, of course, because I'm an assistant of Arkansas State. And what, what frustrated me about the game was that Arkansas State was very careless with the ball. You know, they were doing a lot of bounce passes across the court and a lot of, like, goofy uh, uh, um, offensive fouls that they kept. Ten of ten, of, uh, ten of ten shots in a row. They were just completely unstoppable at home. So what Texas State to me is, is like a very fundamentally sound team, kind of like Troy with Scott Cross and the way he plays his, his team. I think those teams are very similar in that they have a deepish bench. They are slave to defense. And they have a couple guys who can get hot. You know, Harold and, uh, and Caleb Asbury, who I think got a little injured in Saturday's game. We'll have to take a look at that. If he, if he is injured indeed, that's, that's going to be a huge hit for them. Those guys are just playing lights out. And they are, of course, the most – I think they're the – you know, you said Georgia State's the most dangerous team. And they could be. I haven't really seen them. I haven't, didn't get to see them firsthand. But uh, Texas State seems like just an extremely solid team. But here's something, Tibbs, that I've noticed about the Sun Belt. And, and maybe you can either correct me or agree with me. It seems like every team is great on their home court, not so good when they're away. That's the secret is, is defend your home court and try to sneak a game or two on the road is the secret mm -hmm. to being successful. And, and you're exactly right. Everybody has had the great record in their in their own home arena but i'll tell you this home floor does not always guarantee you a win because the warhawks playing against Louisiana lafayette this past weekend lost on the floor fent you in coliseum thanks to a mystery foul that no one saw except for the ref and that of course set up the game before the last second free throws that gave the cajuns the win cajuns completed the sweep at their home court in the Cajun Dome over the weekend as well. But, yeah, you, you definitely got to defend your home court and try to sneak a game or two on the road. And Texas State has definitely done that, owning Strahan Coliseum. So, to me, uh, Tibbs, what that means is that when we get down to this uh, Pensacola show and it's the it's – the, and nobody has their home court, it's almost like a brand-new season. Or everyone Who's, just loses. So, let me ask you this, Tibbs. Who's the one team that does not have a chance? Little Rock. Yeah, I agree. But is also maybe Georgia Southern in that mix? I've not been impressed the few times I've seen Georgia Southern. So I, I, I think that they're not a noisemaker coming in. I think pretty much the other 12 teams playing basketball, presumably in Pensacola, or they all have a chance to make some noise. Obviously, the top half of the league uh, is the teams more than likely to win the league. I think Georgia State, even though they're they're at the bottom half of the top half of the league, they're definitely the ones that that I so far think are going to go to the dance, winning the conference tournament. So here's here's the thing: even though you've got teams like ULM and Coastal, and uh, uh, who else would be in that bottom sort of UTA, you've got those teams that are, are, are sort of in the bottom tier of the conference. However, don't you feel like 
those are the kind of teams that may not win the conference or conference tournament, but could ruin someone else's chance of winning the conference tournament. I think that would be good, but at the same time, I, I still feel that the Sun Belt is not a strong enough basketball team that we need the best team to represent in the NCAA tournament, in the NIT tournament, in order to make some noise. So while it would be great to see, in theory, a Little Rock upset of Texas State in, in the first round, yeah. I would much rather have Texas State win it all and represent the Sun Belt well uh, for one shining moment later on in March. This is where you and I agree wholeheartedly, Tibbs, because I do hate it when a hot, mediocre Sunbelt team wins that Sunbelt uh, Sun conference and ends up uh, uh, representing the Sunbelt. It's just a disaster for us uh, when that happens. You know, I really, like Troy a few years ago uh, was that team where they just were super hot. They came out and they won the, the conference tournament. I think they're in the middle of the pack when they entered the uh, Sunbelt tournament. And they, of course, got blown out. And last year, I felt like Appalachian State was the same way, although I feel like Appalachian State has improved as a team uh, since, uh, but I don't think that they're the best team in the league. I don't want to say this. I'd much rather see a Texas State or Georgia State uh, represent and, and maybe make some noise in the, in the Sunbelt tournament. Or a South Alabama team that we think is so great and talented finally live up to the hype. What is with that South Alabama team? Those guys can score. Is it? it I, I cannot like they just got destroyed by Appalachian State uh, in Boone, which is always very tough to play. But uh, they just not they do not look good at times. And so yeah, I think they'd be a fun team to watch because they are fun to watch. They I mean they get up and down the court pretty good. They can shoot when they can shoot. It's just there's something off about that team that I can't put my finger on. But, on the uh, women's side, it's really a, a two-horse show with Troy and UTA. Yeah. Troy sits atop the standings, 11-2 mark, winners of seven straight, including 20 wins overall. With the two games left to go before the conference tournament, though, the Trojans, the Trojans can clinch the title with a win and a UTA loss. And if it comes down to a tie, the Trojans actually have the one game in the head-to-head. Yes. I thought you had more to say. <laughs> I don't. And part of it because uh, women's basketball is depressing right now at Arkansas State. So uh, the, uh, the Red Wolves, I think, have lost you know, four or five in a row now. Two of their best players are out with injuries. So it's been very hard for me to get excited about, uh, about Sunbelt women's basketball. Except I did see that Troy had won their 20th game again. Troy seems like just one that that the the ultimate uh, women's team for the Sun Belt uh, these last few years. I'm happy for them, but man, I would like to see my Red Wolves finally overcome this hump. And I know you'd like to see your Warhawks uh, overcome the hump too, because I know that the War- Lady Warhawks are struggling right now. Four and twenty-two. <laughs> 0 and 12 in conference. Damn. But you know, I'm, I'm sitting here complaining about the Red Wolves, but but they have a freshman, Karen Whittington. She's yeah. fifth in scoring with 18 and a half points a game. They just can't rebound and turn the ball over too much. They're averaging 17 and a half turnovers a game. 
And that's just in the conference games. You're not going to win when you put up those kind of numbers. When you're not grabbing the rebounds and you're not taking care of the basketball, you will not win games. Yeah. All right. Rebounds has been a problem with Arkansas State as well. Uh, it's it, it, partly because of the injuries. But I have noticed that uh, the Lady Red Wolves, when they get out there and play, they're just not aggressive trying to get that ball. And really, that's the only way you can win games is it, whether you're a men's team or a women's team is to get those second chance shots when, you know, you miss the three or whatever, you got to have offensive rebounds. And I guess that's not happening for uh, the Warhawks or the Red Wolves. Obviously hot happening for Troy though, obviously happening for UTA. So who's challenging them to, to who, who could rise from the, 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 the magma and overtake those two in the conference tournament. Troy or bust. <laughs> Troy. <laughs> Or bust. Not UTA couldn't I, I I have all my eggs in okay. the Ch- Chanda Rigby, Troy Trojan bus. I think that's a safe place for your eggs. Yeah. I mean, they, they don't have very many turnovers. Uh-huh. They, they are scoring. They're rebounding. They are winning at every angle of the game and – I don't see anybody that will be able to take them down in the Sunbelt Conference except maybe COVID or a bad Troy Trojan outing where they just kind of beat themselves. But I don't see the second option happening. Yeah, you're probably right. You know, here's, the, here's something I learned, too, about Sunbelt basketball. The good programs get stronger. Georgia State, South Alabama, to agree, and Texas State. Those teams have gotten stronger. Those teams have, have found their talents and evolved, figured out their weaknesses, rooted them out, and became good teams. The teams that did not involve are guys like Arkansas State and UTA. And maybe Appalachians, we've seen some inks in their armor lately. So uh, I guess we're going to have to see when the turn. Oh, my internet is unstable. But we're going to have to see when the tournament comes up. And I think it could be anyone's ball game. But right now, it looks like Texas State and Georgia State, which too bad Ben isn't here to give us his insight on that. So, Jeremy, we talked about the mess that is Conference USA yeah. and Sunbelt Conference. Uh-huh. The last weeks of baseball, or excuse yeah. me, the last weeks of basketball. And as you can tell, it's already on my mind. That means it's yeah. a baseball season. <laughs> yes, it's finally here. And we have with us one of the biggest all-American names recently for the Sunbelt Conference, and that is the good old Southpaw, the Raging Cajun, Gunner Leger. Welcome in there, Gunner. No way, Gunner Leger. How y'all doing, man? Thank y'all for having me. Yes, sir. So, Gunner, back in the days, 2015 to 2019, you were the man at Lafayette. <laughs> I mean, two-time All-American, Sunbelt Freshman of the Year, 53 career starts, the most in school history, the fifth most strikeouts in school history with 288. What are the big things that stand out about that career that you had back for the Raging Cajuns? Oh, man, I was lucky. Uh, I I really, honestly, I feel like I was kind of lucky. My freshman year, obviously, coming off 2014, they they were loaded um, with talent, number one team in the country. And a lot of those guys could have came back. Um, for their senior year and probably the beginning of my career would have looked a lot different just because we would have had so much depth. Um, I mean, my class, we had Evan Guillory, me, 
the uh, Demo, Wyatt. I mean, we had a lot of arms um, in my class. And if you would have, you know, if Austin Robichaud would have came back and um, Plitt came back and, and some of these, uh, Baranek, some of these guys that had another year, I'm not sure if Baranek had another year, but there was a handful of guys that could have come back. Um, and like I said, it, you know, probably would have looked a lot different for all of us, but we were able to come in where, you know, somebody had to pick up a lot of innings, you know, and I think that my whole group, really, Evan, Wyatt, me, Demo, we all kind of were able to, to contribute um, a lot early. Um, and, and really, man, I'm, I'm just, uh, especially with how it ended, you know, you never know when you're going to get taken off this earth and, and how road passed and kind of how the tail end of my career ended with my injuries and having to come back and the draft and all that stuff. I just really, I'm lucky, or I consider myself lucky to, to spend those last couple months and, and years with Robe, because um, obviously, I mean, no one expected that to happen, you know. Without a doubt, and, and and going back to that freshman year, the Raging Cajuns blow through the Sun Belt Conference, go to the NCAA regionals, you get to play LSU, which everybody in Louisiana wants to go against the flagship school, especially the Tigers that are, you know, perennially in the top five anyway. But then you get to go against future first-round draft pick there, Alex Bregman. How great was it that, A, he couldn't even remember your name, but that (laughs) freshman that that was going against him is is probably one of the best pitchers I ever faced, I think was his quote. Yeah, man. No, I mean, that's – obviously that's uh, humbling coming from him. Um, I would probably say he's, he's gotta be one of the, the greater athletes to come out, ever come out of this state. I know he's not from Louisiana, but play for, for LSU and what he's done with the Astros and what they've been able to do. Um, so no, that, that whole experience, man, that was cool. That was, uh, I mean, that's like the, the pinnacle of, of college baseball, you know, a, a, a super regional and, and, um, and Alex box, you know? Um, so it was also cool. I mean, the twins were on that team and then, uh, Bo and Bryce Jordan, who we played in high school with, um, grew up with them. And then Kenan was on, uh, Kenan Fontenot was, was at UL with me and Nick Zombreaker was at UL. So we had a, it's kind of cool, man. We had a, a lot of guys. There was a lot of, uh, Jared Foster was on that LSU team. Um, Andrew Stevenson from around here, um, grew up around him. So that whole, like I said, that whole experience and being able to do that, not very many people get to get to say that they, they started a, a game, a game, uh, a deciding game to go to Omaha um, in Alex boxes, especially as a freshman. So it was really and for cool. the other team. Yeah. And for the opposing team. So blowing it up there in Lafayette in 2016, your sophomore year, you were definitely one of the top draft prospects. So you got to go to the place I still want to go to up in the Northeast <laughs> of the Cape Cod league. Jeremy, yeah. this guy to say he dominated the Cape Cod league. And I mean, the Cape Cod is the, the creme de la creme of college baseball. Well, everybody knows that. This guy, seven <laughs> seven games, three starts, .43 ERA and 29 Ks. How, how do you do that knowing you're going against the top hitters in all of college baseball? Uh, I put a good run together. Uh, that was – I was throwing well there. Um, it was kind of my first time ever really being out of the pen. Um, since kind of like my early, my early high school years, really. So I had a couple starts, but really they used us. We were really, really only throwing like one to two innings at the most, three innings at the most. We were kind of piggybacking each other. So it kind of allowed me to go out there and just kind of empty the tank early. So I was able to see kind of a little bit of an increase in velocity. 
up there and just everything was kind of working, man. It all lined up and kind of had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder going up there. I, I felt like I kind of had to prove myself. Um, kind of always, you know, I was never the guy that was flashy throwing 95 or anything like that. Didn't have flashy stuff, but just pride of myself on being consistent and getting outs and being dependable. Um, and so whenever I got the opportunity to go up there, um, I wanted to, you know, prove that I belonged. Um, so it was in that month or however long I was up there, two months that I was up there. Not only was it one of the coolest experiences I've really ever been a part of, um, but it was really important to me to go up there and perform well. But like I said, that place is, if, if you've never been, if you're a, a baseball fan in general, that is like gotta be a bucket list item. I mean, it's, I, I just assumed that it was going to be a lot of, um, I mean, like you said, it's, it's really the best baseball players in the country outside of the 20 that are on team USA. And a lot of those guys, especially the hitters, we had a handful of guys, um, a couple on my team um, that were team, you know, pegged for team USA, but they spent like the first couple of weeks in the Cape, just getting at bats to stay kind of ready until team USA got roll, uh, rolling. Um, but that whole community and that whole area I mean, it's a super, it's super family oriented. You're, they just, they adopt you really. They adopt every kid that shows up and it's, it's one of the coolest places really ever for, for anything baseball related. So I, I, that was, I'm extremely lucky that my career took me, took me to that place and I was able to do that. And Gunnar, when you were playing with the Cajuns, and, you know, the Sun Belt has, I don't want to say surprisingly good baseball. It's always just had solid baseball, but it's really taken off in the last yeah. uh, 10, 15 years. When you were playing with the Cajuns, was there one guy that you had the trouble with most? And who was that guy? Who people, people would always ask me that. And, and scouts would ask me that in my junior year. And I, uh -huh. I can be, I'll be honest with you. The one person I could never get out was Kyle Claymont. Kyle Claymont. Um, for the Cajuns so it was in the fall if he was up I mean I was just for whatever reason it was just like a, I almost had a mental block it was either a double or a home run every time he got up so <laughs> thank thank God that he was on my team for those couple of years and not anybody else's team um, but I mean Travis Swaggerty was a great player at South Al I know we us in South Al always dueled it out especially when I was there that was always um you know, the intensity level in those games was really high. Um, kind of got chippy sometimes. So those are always fun. But Swaggerty's obviously a great player and from from what I have kind of been. I try and follow everybody, at least that I, I've played with or that's still in the, you know, still in the league and doing something, trying to play, um, whether it be minor leagues or independent or in pro ball. I know he seems to be doing really well with the Pirates. Um, but not, not anybody, I guess, off the top of my head. Um, but like I said, for whatever reason, Kyle, Kyle had, Kyle had my number, man. So Kyle having your number, who was the one team that you felt like you always had success against? Surely there was a, I feel like I threw, I feel like, I feel like South Al, I always threw really, I feel <laughs> like I, I've had some good outings against South Al. And I don't, I think that was just because, like I said, we, it, Kevin Hill was there. I think it was Kevin. Yeah, Kevin Hill was their Friday night guy for a year or two. I think my first year or two. Um, I mean, he was Sunbelt Pitcher of the Year, uh, the year of my freshman year, the year I was freshman of the year. And, I mean, we always went at each other. And then, obviously, that 
that conference uh, tournament championship game is, I think, probably one of the best baseball games maybe ever. <laughs> um, <laughs> crazy game. So South Al was always fun, man. It was just whether, you know, whether I threw all, you know, threw really well or just threw okay or whatever the outcome of the game was, it was always fun. Um, which, I mean, that's why you play those, those type of games. You know, we, we sometimes talk about facilities. I'm a citizen of Arkansas State. Our facilities are, are in need of an upgrade. Who was your favorite places to play in the Sun Belt? Uh, obviously love being at home. Um, nothing like that, but nothing like the Teague. Um, yeah. But the, the one year we went to Coastal, that was my that was my junior year. We went to Coastal. That was the first time we, we had played them. Um, I want to say it was their first year in the, in the league. And I mean, that place is like breathtaking. It's stunning. Hmm. Um, the, I mean, the, the surface is, I mean, double A, triple A, big league surface. Like it's just pristine surface. Weather's obviously beautiful. You're on the beach. So you kind of got that breeze. Um, palm trees everywhere. Big, nice hitting facility. Park is super open. Um, the fans aren't as rowdy. Like the, the environment's kind of, uh, yeah environment yeah is not not super rowdy but i mean there's people you know they they come and they support they're there um but i think they're just kind of like taking in the game whereas you come down to ul and you're if south when south out comes down to ul our fans are not just taking in the game um (laughs) so it gets a little personal but no that place was that place was beautiful um uta was always a tough place to play for whatever reason they obviously they have they've always had good players um traditionally been a great program and Every time – I think my entire career at U, every time we went over there, I, I know we got – I got swept twice over there in my five years. So, anytime we went to UTA, it wasn't good. So. So, was there a, a mound that you would come to and you would hate? Was there – it doesn't have to be in the Sun Belt. Was there ever just one mound that you'd get on and go, this is a crap mound? <laughs> uh, I will say, and I, I know that they've done a lot, since since I, we've been there but app state and they've like i said they've gotten much better but app state was was rough um so i remember going into the bullpen and it was just and i mean visitors bullpen those those visitors bullpens usually get pretty neglected i mean by no means are we trying to make it comfortable for the opposing pitchers um but that was rough and i mean that park was at that time, they really didn't have – they were struggling, you know, as a, as a program. Um, and so they didn't have a ton of people in there, you know, in the stands, and it was cold and windy. And, you know, at, at that point, I think my freshman year when we went up there, we were kind of struggling, and we called it the app trap. You know, like you go up there, and they were – you know, their record wasn't great at the time, and we were kind of trying to get it back rolling before postseason started. And, and as, you know, we, I think we went up there and dropped two. Um, but since then, I mean, they've gotten, they've gotten substantially better. Their coaching staff has done an unbelievable job. Um, and I know they've done a lot to that park. And I mean, that, that city's awesome. Boone is awesome. Obviously they have a great football program. Um, and I, I mean, I think it's only really a matter of time. Like you said, I feel like really all of the Sunbelt teams are, are really doing well, you know, I mean, and like you said, Arkansas state, baseball facilities maybe aren't great but they're always they got a good baseball team every year you know um so and i think us adding southern miss obviously great baseball program and mm. 
the Sun Belt really, I feel like, is going to become one of the somewhat premier leagues outside of you know your big, your, your SEC and your your Big Twelve and um, ACC. I feel like Sun Belt is in that mix, you know, right after those. So, Denner, it sounds to me that you approve of the new additions to the Sun Belt uh, menu or roster of uh, of programs. Yeah, no, I, I do. I think it's good for everybody, man. I mean. That's a lot of good teams, you know, um, and I think at the end of the day, especially for as it, as it pertains to baseball, RPI is really everything, obviously, and like that the ab trap, you know, you go up there and that's a it's a tough place to play just because I mean we're fortunate enough to be playing in front of three, four, five thousand at the Teague every weekend, so you go up there and they're, you know, that environment's just different and it's tough to kind of get going, you know, and so. I think the 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 more teams that are in the mix year in and year out, it just promotes better a better brand of baseball for everybody. And I think it it's good for everybody, every organization, every school, every fan. You know, you're going to see a, a higher end player because we're competing at a higher level. You know, from from top to bottom. So you never want. I mean, and, I mean, the SEC is obviously on a whole kind of a whole different level in almost every sport. But I think that's you know, they're not very uh, – they're not top-heavy. Every team in that league, anytime you show up any weekend, like, you got you kind of got a war on your hands for three for three days. Um, and so I think it's going to kind of allow the Sun Belt to be able to compete later in the postseason because you're going to be a little more battle-tested. You know, it's not going to be like, well, we rolled over to whoever was struggling that year in the bottom part of the, the conference and just beat them by 20. You know, every weekend is going to be tough. you got to show up every weekend going to kind of promote some consistency and hopefully some tougher baseball games so we can, you know, so at least somebody from our conference can can be really competitive year in and year out, or a handful, hopefully, you know. So, Gunnar, you have played at the highest level all the way through your career. Literally, Little League World Series for the storied South Lake Charles team, all the way through coaching the South Lake Charles Little League team at yeah. the – state runner-up level, yeah. CA regionals, Cape Cod, had the good old stint there in the minor leagues uh, with yeah. the Indians. What's your biggest memory that you have for baseball throughout the, all those stops in your career? I would tell you that my time at, at Barb, I was, I was lucky. I mean, obviously, Glenn Giacchini and everybody over there, Miss Raysa and Everybody involved over there is just obviously a really special place to be able to do what, what they do, and they're loaded again this year. Um, but that whole group that I was there with, that was basically that that little league team from uh, that we went to Williamsport with, was basically that that same team that went to to Barb, and we had been playing together for majority of us had been playing together since we were since T ball man. Um, so we played travel ball our whole lives together, and so that those last my senior year at Barb and really my junior year too, but my senior year at Barb for all of us to be able to do that and win the state championship and um, win the national championship. It was just, I mean, it's something I'll never forget, you know, and that's kind of before, I mean, when you get to college, it's, it's obviously you're still playing the game, but it gets a little more job. Like, you know, you're, you're putting in the amount of hours you're putting in school gets a lot tougher and it just, 
it's different. You're, I mean, in essence, you're kind of getting paid to play, you know, like you're, they're giving you a scholarship and they expect you to perform. Um, so high school was just, you know, I guess kind of somewhat before the, the real world kind of sort of started to set in. Um, so now I'm old and retired now. So now it's really setting in. So I, I love all these guys and, you know, they're mid late twenties that are, oh, man, I'm so old and retiring. Retired. Yeah. Hey man, I, I, I feel about I, my body feels about 50 every morning. So all those innings added up over the years. So, so you mentioned Barb there in Lake Charles, where you went to high school at the time, your dad was the recruiting coordinator receivers coach at McNeese. Was there pressure for you to kind of stick close to home and just go to McNeese, you know, the, the college right down the street? Uh, I wouldn't say that. I mean, my dad was obviously supportive of, of, anything that I was going to do. He wanted me to be able to, you know, have the best quality of life, wherever that was going to be. Um, when coach Burroughs was still at McNeese, he, he kind of brought us all in. And I want to say that was really my first offer. He, coach Burroughs basically brought all of us and me, um, the tw- Jordan twins, Kale bro, Dayton do guys, kind of everybody in that area. Um, so that were, there were Barb Sulphur, Sam Houston, whoever, um, and kind of tried to get us all to stay. And we were honestly thinking about it. Um, and then Bo and Bryce committed to LSU. And then it was kind of like, okay, well, so we kind of started losing pieces and everybody kind of went their separate ways. But um, I mean, what, what, what Coach Hill has done over there. Um, and then after Coach Bros had left, Coach Hill kind of honored all of those same scholarships. And, um, you know, at that time, I think it was just obviously I'd been going to, to coach ropes camp since I was shoot really young, you know, his, his father, son camps and some of his pitching camps. And that was really UL was the first base college baseball that I ever really watched. My grandfather had season tickets um, up around section a. And I mean, I can remember going to games with him and watching Hunter Moody and Scott Hawkins and, and all those guys. Um, and so whenever they called and, and offered, and it was just kind of a, especially with what they had going at the time, you know, 2013 and 2014 best team in the country bunch of draft guys all that stuff it was just tough to pass up you know and, and I, I fell in love with coach Deggs um coach Deggs was the one that really recruited me um and so you know I just I fell in love fell in love with the place the moment I visited it you, you mentioned coach Robe, coach Deggs obviously the last two coaches there at Louisiana Lafayette for baseball the un- unfortunate passing there of coach coach robe over the last year um talk about that relationship that you had with him and and then also kind of your role now with coach Deggs and that that team yeah man like I said earlier I I was lucky to be able to spend the amount of time um that I did with coach robe um and obviously I think you talk to any of his his ex-players or anybody that really has come across him in, in any way shape or form whether it be player coach person doesn't matter um his door was always open, man. And it was, uh, a lot of wisdom and it was, um, really not, not, not about baseball. I mean, obviously highly educated, man. He's seen about every level of baseball, good, bad, great. You know, he's about as knowledgeable as it gets when it comes to pitching and kind of controlling innings and pitchability, if you will. Um, but I know whenever, I had my injuries um, after the draft and I can remember calling him after I turned it down and basically told all the teams that 
after the second day that I didn't, I was coming back basically um, after I didn't sign in the top 10 rounds and I called him and I was just like, I'm going back. Like, you know, we got kind of some unfinished business and I want to take this place to Omaha. You know, I want to try to do it. And obviously didn't know I was about to have to have elbow surgery and then that followed by the leg surgery. And um, so that was kind of a, one of the lower points in my life, just because it was kind of unexpected, a lot of adversity. And there was, um, you know, kind of everything to that point had been really going right. I really didn't have like anything, you know, not a ton, I guess not one event or anything crazy adversity wise in my career. Um, and I felt like I was, you know, everything was leading up to that draft. And that's what I wanted to do was go play pro ball, you know? Um, and so I leaned on him a lot and he helped me through a lot of things. And there was a lot of times where, you know, I had just gotten out of my sling and could barely even pick up a ball and I'm on crutches um, because my, my leg's still healing. And I'm just sitting back there with him. You know, he's watching bullpens or I'm sitting in his office with him or standing behind the tunnel with him. And so really just a lot of, of quality time, you know, um, that you don't really get with somebody that's as busy as he was. Um, so I think we had a, I think we had a, a unique connection and relationship and I'm very, very fortunate to have it and, and still have it with, with that entire family. Um, so it's, um, it's definitely, uh, definitely just lucky, you know, to be able to do that. And again, that my career took me there and how my career kind of unfolded for me to be there in his really his last moments, you know? So with that said, we know that you were the great pitcher. Your dad, though, the great outfielder, wound up drafted, having a small career there in the Pirates organization. The key question is, could you have taken your dad or would he have taken you deep? Oh, no, no, no. We've, we've already we've, – we have, the, have had this, uh, this argument uh, – I say argument, this discussion a handful of times. But the problem is he, he probably knows exactly what I would throw to him. Um, and the handful of times that we have had this discussion, he thinks that I would hit him on purpose, which I might buzz the tower. I don't know that I would hit him, but I might I might throw one high and hard, you know. Um, but I think I got him. So, and he, he'll admit he would. I mean, in the minor leagues, I mean, you can look up the stats. He wasn't uh, he wasn't the best hitter. He was a hell of a defender. He had a great arm and he could really run, but he struggled at the plate. So, I like my chances. I, I know Coach uh, Coach Leger, and, and there's no way that he was a runner. I, I, I beg to do. <laughs> Apparently, he could fly, man. That was, from everybody I've ever talked to, ex coaches or anything, um, he could really, really run. He could he could really track it down in center, and he had a an absolute cannon. So I think that's the problem. Is he? I think he tied my right arm behind my back, and so. I think that's where all my velocity is at. That's probably why I threw 85 my whole career and not 95 because I should have been a righty, but nice. Good times. Well, Gunner, we appreciate you joining us here on Funbelt Podcast talking about Sunbelt Baseball. What are you up to these days, and, and what do you have to plug? Uh, man, I just actually just took a job at Dwight Andrews. Um, so I'm, I'm an insurance producer there at Dwight Andrews. So that's kind of the – I guess the, uh, the day job, you know, that's the, that's the career, the path I'm, I'm kind of trying to go down. Um, and then also I run a facility on the side at, at Raging Cajun and Raging Mounds. 
Um, and we kind of try to tie in some of our pitching to color stuff over there. Um, so I do, I do some group work with younger kids Monday through Thursday and then some individual stuff Friday and Saturday just to kind of stay in the game. And I like helping the kids and um, keeps me busy. Um, but outside of that, man, just life after baseball, you know, trying to figure out, trying to figure out the real world and trying to figure out, you know, what path I want to go down and kind of what, uh, what life's going to look like. So even though I feel old, I know I'm young. So just trying to be patient, you know, and, and kind of let, let some things come to me. Awesome. Well, Gunnar, we appreciate you joining us and let us know if there's anything that uh, we can do in the future for you. Absolutely, man. Thank y'all for having me. Jeremy, another Sunbelt legend in the books, our first baseball legend there, uh, former Raging Cajun, Southpaw, Gunnar Leger. Fantastic to hear about just overall baseball, pitching in College World Series, pitching in Little League, state championship games, the Cape Cod. He's done it all. Certainly one of the greats of the Sunbelt. They're a great interview. A guy who uh, – right now seems to have a whole future ahead of him. It'd be interested to see where Gunner heads next. Now that he's an old man and his baseball career is over. We're all old men, apparently. No kidding. He could join us on the, you know what? We should offer him a position on the podcast. He he would know way too much more than us. (laughs) Oh no. I don't want anybody exposing us for the idiots we are. Yeah, exactly. All right. Jeremy. No Gunner. said plugs, promos and parting shots. What do you got? Well, Arkansas State heads, like everybody in the Sun Belt, heads into the last week of its men's and women's basketball season. I'll be in uh, Jonesboro on Friday when Arkansas State takes on Appalachian State in a game which I look at as a revenge game with possible implications for where the uh, Red Wolves end up in the Sun Belt tournament. So be looking for Hellraiser dot com and any updates there on warhawkreport.com still chatting on the message boards as we limp into pensacola for basketball and open up the baseball season one and three not a bad uh, or excuse me one and two rather after the opening weekend picking up a win over southern illinois on friday night it's here, man. It's it's the the crossover grind. Pretty soon, spring football beginning as well, and so looking forward to see what 2022 has in store for us all, as well as seeing how conference realignment finally shakes out. You know, Saturday was kind of crazy. If you were kind of paying attention on social media, you had women's basketball, you had men's basketball, you had uh, baseball starting up, you had softball starting up. And then you had uh, some of, I, I believe, I, I could be wrong about this, but I, I think there's a little spring football going on too. I think Appalachian State's already got people out in the field. So uh, if you're a college sports fan, uh, February and, and the beginnings of March is a big, big time for us. So uh, I'm excited for it too. Now, I would like my Red Wolves to play a little bit better baseball, but uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Until next week. I'm Dusty Chibodeau, Warhawk Report, Jeremy Harper for HowRazor.com, and we will see you next week. Love you all.